and you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Sanjana Sathian, writer of the novel Gold Diggers. It is her debut novel. It is a magical, realist, coming-of-age story, skewering the model minority myth to tell a sharply funny, deeply moving story about Indian American identity, community, and the costs of the American dream. Now, exciting news here, Mindy Kaling recently announced that her production company, Kaling International, will adapt this book into a TV series with Sanjana co-writing the adaptation and Kaling set to be the executive producer. This is a fascinating story. It is primarily about two young teenagers who are neighbors and they wind up getting mixed into this plot to steal jewelry and really any other gold-plated possessions of people in their community, and then melting that gold down into a bit of an elixir, kind of a magic elixir that proves to be a boost to one's ambition, to one's ability to uh, adapt, and perhaps a bit of a spark plug to secure a successful future. So there is a lot of discussion going on here about the pressures that are faced by first-generation and even second-generation Americans were brought into a community that is full of an ensemble of great characters who are all dealing with these pressures in their own way. But can this, this gold, this gold elixir, be the answer or the antidote to those pressures? Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Sanjana Sathian's great way of describing characters and her preternatural sensibility for dialogue. And we're going to talk about how the gold rush of the 1840s looms large in America's mythology and how this book explores that history as well as exploring the unknowable future. Here's our chat with Sanjana Sathian about her book, Gold Diggers. Thank you for joining us, Sanjana Sathian. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This Gold Diggers is your debut novel. It's amazing. Um, so congrats on that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad you liked it. Yeah. And uh, it's not a spoiler that this book involves uh, gold thievery. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to start right there. Gold is famously uh, a very, very durable, very durable metal that can withstand pressure. Uh, it, it's also naturally alluring and, and has a lore about it of, of being spellbinding. But from that aspect of withstanding pressure, can you talk about how that was an entryway for you to write about, write a novel that was, wasn't only magical realism, but uh, also a very realistic portrayal of, of being a second generation American? What a beautiful phrase, withstanding pressure. I don't yeah. think I, I use that. That's Gold. nice. But <laughs> yes, exactly. As you say, it's unvarnished. It contains kind of all of these hopes and dreams that we put on it. Particularly Indian Americans, I think, and Indians um, use gold a lot. Uh, we keep a lot of gold in the house. Um, it's involved in kind of religious rituals. You give it as a gift uh, quite often. And so what I wanted to do when I decided I was writing about gold thefts was I knew I wasn't really interested in like gold as cash. I, I didn't want my characters to be stealing gold just for money. Right. So I thought about it and and sort of suddenly it came to me that, you know, they were going to drink this gold and uh, they were going to turn it into a magical elixir. 
And it took a minute for me to realize what the purpose of the magical elixir was going to be. But I was thinking about my childhood growing up in this extremely competitive Indian American community. And instantly I was like, oh, they're stealing each other's ambitions. They're stealing the symbolic meaning that other people have put onto this gold. And so um, the gold thieves, um, Anjali, who's a first generation immigrant, and her daughter, Anita, they get into the gold thefts. They start kind of smelting it, creating this magical elixir. But the novel takes on the meaning that it does, I think, largely because of the narrator, Neil, who is their neighbor. Mm -hmm. He's deeply in love with Anita, um, also not a spoiler. And uh, he he is able to steal ambition that does not come naturally to him. Um, and so in that sense, the gold goes from having the symbolic meaning that you were talking about to having a very, very literal meaning that drives the plot. Indeed, indeed. Neil has, uh, it's almost like the opening scene of The Graduate. Everyone's telling him he has potential, but he doesn't have ambition. Um, and then he gets this elixir. So um, there is magical realism. There is these. Uh, there's also these magnetizing sort of poles between future and history that you're talking about. But again, distilling some of that uh, away, this is a story of Neil and and uh, and Ani, but also an ensemble of of people with youngsters just like them uh, who have diverse personalities. And to your credit, character development is just off the charts in this book. Uh, so can you talk about building these two lead characters, considering the the adventures you were about to take them on, and maybe even specifically the decision to not have it be from Annie's point of view? Yeah. So I originally wrote from Anita's point of view right. because I was interested in uh, this idea that her mom is a gold thief. Her mom is separated from her dad. So maybe she's on the outskirts of society. But Anita is a character who is extremely ambitious. And kind of the whole point is at the start, she's so ambitious that she robs herself of an inner life. And so that didn't make for a very good voice to drive a novel. And so I kept thinking and I realized there was a character in her periphery who I maybe could head hop into. Mm -hmm. So when I met Neil... Neil is someone who has a rich inner life because he doesn't have as much ambition. And uh, that meant that I could kind of split my aspects between the two of them. In high school, I looked a lot more like Anita. I was very, very intense. Uh, and I could give her that intensity, that ambition, that drive. But Neil is the head I wanted to wander around through. Neil uh, doesn't quite fit in. Uh, ambition doesn't come naturally to him. And so he can see the world with new eyes. One trick that I think a lot of writers use is to have someone be a newcomer to a world and to have them discover the world along with the reader. And Neil can do that because all of this is new and not natural to him. Right. And he also gets to join in on their little operation uh, as an outsider. They, of course, start to steal jewelry uh, and creating this elixir. This elixir imbues someone with, as you said, a specific energy to help them realize uh, the phrase that I have in my my memory from the book is help them realize a deserved future because it is giving them all of the ambitions and hopes that that were poured into it from previous owners. That's incredibly powerful, but also, again, dovetails into the experience of being first generation and the pressure for success. Can you talk about how anxieties of securing our future is such an important part of this book? Yeah, I think that people have maybe heard one aspect of the immigrant story, which is 
immigrants give up a lot to be here. Um, my parents came from India and, you know, they were lucky enough to speak the language and have good jobs to come to, but they left behind a lot that was familiar. They left behind family. They left behind all of their friends, um, kind of taking a big risk. That's a story that maybe people have heard um, before. And so that element is in the book. But what I was really interested in was less that kind of first generation story and more like what my generation dealt with. I was born here. And uh, I think for us, America, uh, I think I use this phrase in the book, but, you know, America sort of feels like a second language. It's it's not even natural for some of us who grew up here. And the reason for that is that our parents didn't have a full idea of what America could be. So the immigrant burden actually becomes kind of it changes for the second generation. It becomes a very limited picture of how to succeed. All of your hope gets placed on get into a great college, hopefully Harvard, hopefully the Ivy League, get a high paying job, be upwardly mobile, and then settle into a nice marriage and a nice mortgage. Mm -hmm. And that is deeply constricting. I have seen it do damage to people in my community. I'm still trying to escape it. And so what I was interested in was how that burden changes over generations and restricts people's imagination for who we can be. And yet there's this this push and pull that I was sort of talking about of being appreciative and reverent and sort of carrying on all the history that is from the country that your parents, grandparents come from. And then finding, again, f- another thing that we talk about when we drink this gold, and, and I think there's a quote from Neil's father too, is there's this potential to help us adapt or this idea of we're still adapting. So that's a big part of the book. It's very, very compelling. There's as I said, there's all these meditations on the future, but a lot of focus on history. Neil meets uh, an elder man who regales this story for him, and it kind of sparks an interest in the California gold rush. But we go deeper than that. You go deeper than that. Not even just hearing of the California 49ers. There's mention later of the, the Georgia 29ers, and you explore how gold was this alluring signal, like a bell calling people to this land from other countries. What what drew you to that and to unpack that history here? Yeah, I mean, the California gold rush is core to American mythology, the way we talk about ourselves. And I don't know about you, but the way I heard about it in school was look at all these people who were drawn west by gold. They went to go make their fortune. They took a risk. And we kind of celebrate that ambition. And we don't talk as much about the costs of the gold rush. You know, it involved displacing a lot of people who lived there in the first place. Um it, and, you know, the the Georgia gold rush that you mentioned, it led to the Trail of Tears and the, the displacement of, of the Cherokee Nation. Um, there were real costs to this American uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I was really interested in was finding a way to put an Indian in that story. And that didn't come naturally because there weren't very many Indians who were in the gold rush. I found almost none. But when I was doing this research... I found a travelogue in the Library of Congress archives that uh, was the story of, it was just called The Story of the Hindu. And I I took it, it was a story um, kind of darkly of like a lynch mob of a bunch of white people in the gold rush coming across an Indian man, accusing him of stealing gold, and then basically doing some vigilante justice and deciding that he needed to be held accountable. I already had the conceit, the contemporary conceit of gold theft at the time, and this just it made sense to include. Um, But as you say, Neil encounters that story in the first half of the book when he meets this older man, Ramesh uncle. 
And then later in the book, when he is a PhD student in history, he goes deeper. He becomes obsessed with this story. And like me, he tries to prove the existence of this man, but he can't because Ultimately, this man's story is marginal to history. It was not recorded, which is the case for so many of us who come from colonized backgrounds. Our history is marginal. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up being able to write about that experience of chasing your own history and Mm -hmm. not seeing it. Mm -hmm. I have to ask, there's an element of debate, competitive debate in this, uh, which I know you have a background in. But as a novelist, you were able to, again, weave that in as an element of of having to, to prove yourself, I think, in this in this coming-of-age story. Uh, but again, it comes back to that pressure of having to prove yourself. Did you feel that, did you feel that yourself when you were in debate? And was it a, a no-brainer that you would, you know, definitely include it in this book, in Neil's life? Yeah, I did competitive policy debate. It was my whole life in high school. I was sort of resistant to writing about it because it has all these like weird rules and it's definitely a subculture. People speak at 300 words per minute. Um, It's really hard to explain to an outsider. So it's not a massive part of the book, but for me, debate actually was kind of my gold. Um, It was the ambition that I was addicted to. People have compared the the molten gold in the book that Neil becomes addicted to. They've compared it to like Adderall and Ritalin and these substances that people do in high school. But that isn't totally what it is. He, he does kind of get into Adderall later. But uh, for me, it was a literalization of the experience I had as someone who really liked to win, got addicted to winning, and then didn't have enough of a life beyond that. Um, and that's kind of what I distilled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, and uh, I appreciate there's, uh, Neil is on a destination to go compete in East Lansing in Michigan. Uh, lots of mentions of East Lansing, home of my alma mater. So I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, I spent every summer in Ann Arbor um, right for, yeah, for debate camp. Um, and a lot of people went to East Lansing too, yeah. And then I'll just ask the final question, which is a big one, I guess. A lot of people have said that this, and I read all these blurbs that say that this 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 book has sort of a biting satire or that it's funny, um, but I don't really read that so much. I just think that it was, that was sort of a natural outpouring of you really getting into the voices of all these 15 and 16 year olds. And I think that that was crucial. I think their dialogue is amazing and I could see how people could interpret that because it's very sharp. But I think that that was such a crucial part to creating this book is getting yourself back into that headspace of these characters who are in 2006, they're teenagers, uh, you know, talk about that, talk about creating their dialogue. I think that, and I'll dovetail that into, of course, there's a cool ensemble here. So it's probably no surprise that Mandy Kaling would like to make a show of it. So... (laughs) First of all, please do all of my interviews for me. I agree. It's not a satire. Um, I'm so glad people are laughing. I think that's a wonderful thing to be able to give people. But I don't think of myself as the comic novelist. I'm just snarky. Um, And my characters are snarky, too. Um, I have been that way my whole life. Um, Having the chance to co-write the adaptation with Mindy Kaling's production company is so thrilling. She is really a comic genius. And she did this thing really, you know, when I was still a teenager, 
where she figured out how to tell just irreverent stories that were a little bit offbeat about second generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I think whether or not that was a direct influence on me, that changed the landscape of how people receive stories about brown people, about second generation Americans. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just, I'm so glad that the novel is going to be kind of in safe hands um, with her for the adaptation. Dialogue was really hard for me when I was starting out. Uh, I had no idea that it was going to work, but Mm -hmm. I think I read a lot of old G chats and AOL instant messenger (laughs) uh, messages to remember what we sounded like back then. And got back into those heads, as you said. Yes, that was nostalgic to look at some some literal old instant messaging going on here as it takes place in 06 and then jumps forward to 2016. But I think we've talked enough about the book without spoiling it for our listeners too much. But I'll say that I loved it so much. Sanjana, Sathian, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for having me, for being such a careful reader. I appreciate it. that was our chat with Sanjana Sathian, a 2019 graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. She has also worked as a reporter in Mumbai and San Francisco with nonfiction bylines for The New Yorker, The New York Times, Food & Wine, The Boston Globe, and The San Francisco Chronicle. And her award-winning short fiction has been published in esteemed presses like The Master's Review and Salt Hill. So we'll have more information about Sanjana Sathian and her new book, Gold Diggers, which, exciting news, is being adapted into a TV series by Mindy Kaling and her production company. And Sanjana will be co-writing that, so she'll be involved as well. And I highly recommend this book. I really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you listening to this episode. Of course, it's the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name's Jeff Milo. The music that you hear coming in and out of these podcast episodes is by local musician Chad Stocker. If you enjoyed this chat, share it to social media or tell a friend. If you've been listening to us for a while already, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.